interesting message this morning. It's caused me to go back and reflect a lot about life. And, and it was very apparent as I was studying this that, you know, reality is from the very beginning of time, mankind has had uh, a problem being satisfied with what God gives to us. We, we tend to want to uh, do better for ourselves. We think we, we have a tendency to want more or bigger or better. And yet, as Ronnie said this morning, the fourth uh, beatitude states very clearly, Jesus said, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and not just the things of the world, but for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. We've established the fact that God blesses those kind of people. He's the one that that satisfies us. a little truth or consequence this morning. How many of you will admit to me that you've drank at least one Mountain Dew in your life? You thought I was going to say something else. <laughs> at least one Mountain Dew in your life. You know, I, I, used to, uh, I used to drink a whole lot of Mountain Dew. Um, yeah, I was kind of addicted to them, way too much. But uh, I haven't had one now in about six months. I'm sober. I can still taste them. Yeah, that's what they used to look like, man. I can still taste them. They're still good. Um, I don't drink them anymore, but I still got the T-shirt and I wear it. You know, I, I do it every now and then. Anybody here remember your very first Mountain Dew? Anybody? Anybody else? I, I do. I do. I, I remember my first one. It was... Uh, I was about 10 years old and it was a hot summer day and I was up at the uh, elementary school where I went to school and uh, the summer program was going on. Back then you could pay a quarter, you could see a movie, you could get a snack and you could do a craft and we had done all that. Everything kind of wound up about 12 o'clock that day. Some of us got out on the playground and we were running around like a bunch of crazy guys and we got hot and thirsty and sweaty and, and so... You know, we, we, we needed something to drink, and the school actually had an outdoor uh, water fountain. But a friend of mine and I noticed that the, the door to the school's pump house was open. The custodians were working that day, and it just so happened that they stored some sodas in that pump house. And there was like four or five crates. It was back when they had the wooden crates in the, in, in the bottles, you know, like that. And, and right on top, the top crate had Mountain Dew. And so we had a big decision to make. Do we drink water that's already been provided for us or do we steal us a Mountain Dew? Now, neither of us, as we pondered that, were satisfied with the water that had already been provided. So we took for ourselves a Mountain Dew uh, and, and you know, it was hot. But it was sweet and it was good, at least until Coach Gray, the PE coach, caught us. Coach Gray was standing up on the steps of the school in the old building and he saw us as we came out. We, we put the bottle up on the edge of the door and we hit it like that and popped the top off. And we, tank, we took a drink and we kind of stopped and was reflecting and he said, guys, come here. So we made our way over to Coach Gray and he said, okay. Turn them up and finish them. You ever chugged a hot Mountain Dew in July? 
You know, it's not that great. It, you think it is, but it's not. But then he said, okay, guys, uh, now that you're finished, bend over and touch your toes. And he lit us up twice a piece. And uh, trust me, you know, it, it, without question, it was the best and worst of times. <laughs> I'll never forget what that hot Mountain Dew tastes like. So what's the moral of the story? Learn to be satisfied. Why? Because God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or you could use the word rightness, doing the right thing, for they will be satisfied. Question is, why do we have such a hard time being satisfied? Good question. I believe it has everything to do with the fact that we all have a sin nature. We have a natural tendency to do the wrong things that God expects us to do, where, you know, we, we just tend to do the wrong things. It's easy for us to not do what God wants us to do, or it's easy for us to, to do what God doesn't want us to do. Uh, doing the wrong thing is easy. Doing the right thing is hard. It's easy to steal a Mountain Dew. Sometimes it's hard to drink water. Look at what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. He says, I advise you to live according to your new nature or your new life in the Holy Spirit. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The old sin nature loves to do evil, which is just the opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other and your choices are never free from this conflict. You're going to have that kind of problem every day when you get up. You're going to have a battle that goes on, whether, whether you follow the sin nature or you follow the spirit of Christ. So sometimes we're not satisfied because that old sin nature is uh, around us. It's still there. It's not gone. But I also think that it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Think about this now. That garden that God placed man in was a perfect environment. It was the absolute best place for human beings to live and thrive. So there was no excuse for them not living in a right manner with God and each other. You know, they should have been able to get along. Now, I want you to think about man's experience in the garden. I, I've kind of pulled some things out because we sometimes read that passage of Scripture and we just, we just go past it so fast when we're doing our, our paralyzed, paralyzed reading, you know, our Bible reading. We just read and read and read. But the first thing that I saw in this passage of Scripture that was that God had Adam to do uh, the naming of all the animals. I think the Lord was teaching him how to work. Uh, it was also God's way of introducing Adam to all the creatures that he was later to have dominion over. But, but God was also helping Adam to see that he was a human being and that he was very different and separate from all the animal world. But God was also teaching Adam about his plan for humankind and their task of multiplying in numbers. This was reproduction class 101. We talked last week about how God created man in his own image. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. It says, so, so God created human beings in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. So, so God created man to be like him, not physically, but certainly spiritually. He also made human beings as males and female. He, he, he is very specific here. They were to be of the same kind. They're alike, but yet they are different. As someone said, thank God that God created Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. Common sense tells you, think about it, that neither two men nor two women could have achieved God's plan for human beings to populate the earth. God started out with a plan and he still has that plan. It's one man, one woman coming together in marriage. Now, that's God's plan. And it doesn't matter what the world does. It doesn't matter what the world approves or defines. That is what God's going to do, and he doesn't change. Now, I also saw that the first human created by God was Adam. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God, there's those two words for God, Yahweh Elohim, or, uh, yeah, and uh, God formed man's body from the dust of the ground and breathed into it the breath of life. God took some dirt, made it into clay and formed a man, breathed into him and it says, and the man became a living person. Some translations will say a living soul. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had created. Uh, we talked about and have uh, seen before that God had Adam uh, be the caretaker, that was his responsibility, taking care of the garden, pruning the trees, making sure they were taken care of. He also warned Adam about what he could eat in the garden and what he was to leave alone. Now, that was a pretty good job. Uh, during that time of him doing that, though, he found out that he was all by himself. But God was getting him ready for the mate that he was going to pr provide for him. Now, if you look in verse 18, you find out how God did that. It says, and the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a companion who will help him. So the Lord God formed from the soil every kind of animal and bird. And he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And Adam chose a name for each of them. Keep in mind, this is before the first woman was ever made. Obviously, it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. It's hard being alone. Besides that, Adam specifically needed a mate. There was absolutely no way that Adam was ever going to be able to fulfill his God-given purpose without a mate. Tending the garden was one thing. You can do that by yourself. He was good with that. But populating the earth, that was a whole other thing. He needed a mate. Alone, it was impossible for him to do. So Adam really needed someone like himself to complete himself. He needed a helper who was just right for him. He needed someone that could, you know, he could rightly relate to. And yes, I'm talking about sexually. He needed someone. You see, no animal would ever satisfy that need for Adam. But here's the thing. Adam didn't yet know what he needed. God is teaching him. He's helping him to understand life. You know, you just don't know what you don't know, right? He didn't know he needed a mate. 
He didn't know what he was missing out on. Adam was a male. That's obvious. And what he needed was a female mate. He needed a wife. He needed a friend. He needed a life partner. He needed a lover. He needed a companion, a helper, someone from the opposite sex. He needed someone that could help him achieve his God-given role. Now, again, we said it just a minute ago, and remember this. God wanted Adam to take care of all the trees and the bushes in the garden. That was easy, but that was a secondary purpose. His first and foremost responsibility was to be fruitful and multiply. His number one job was to start a family and have children. This was God's way of starting the process of populating the earth with humans who would rightly rule over creation. Now, keep in mind again that God is teaching Adam. He's teaching Adam about what he needs. He's also teaching Adam about what his purpose is. Go back to verse 19. It says, the Lord God formed from the soil every kind of animal and bird, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, and Adam chose a name for each of them. Uh, God orchestrated this amazing event whereby he would bring all the animals in front of Adam, two by two, male and female, for his review. It's kind of like what God did when he brought the animals and he put them on the ark. They came two by two and they marched into the ark. I've often wondered, how did that happen? They, they just kind of like filed in. I think that's what happened the day that Adam was responsible for naming all the animals. God filed them by. And he looked at them. And whatever he called them, it says he named them. But it wasn't just about naming animals. God was doing more. This, this was a process. He, he wanted Adam to know what he was to rule over. He wanted him to be very familiar with the animal world. But he, he's also teaching Adam some very important life facts. Things that don't change. Things that are eternal. The first thing that God teaches Adam is the difference of gender. None of the animals that came before him were gender neutral. These animals were gender specific. They were male and female. They came as couples and there was one male and one female in each couple. You see, God was teaching Adam about uh, the family. He was teaching him about marriage and it was clear what marriage is supposed to be made up of, one male, one female. And Adam sees that. Adam also notices that all the animals that he names, in all of those animals, and you can imagine that was a, that was a huge task. He noticed that as they, all those animals came by him, that there's not even one that looks like him. Not even one. I'm sure that in that process of naming those animals, he figured out that he was the male. But he could not find a human female anywhere. So in this process, he realized that no animal would ever satisfy his need, nor would it satisfy God's plan. He needed a female human. He needed a woman, not an animal and not another man. Now, again, a lengthy process. Didn't happen real quick. It was a long job. He was there for a while. He realized that as he went through all of this that, that you know, Adam becomes very lonely. He's seeing these pairs come by and they've got each other, but he don't have anybody. He's lonely. 
So, so God decides to do something rather amazing for him. And, and I think it was all a part of God's plan to begin with. But God wanted Adam to realize what he was missing. And it says in Genesis 2.21 that the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He anesthetized him. <laughs> and he's asleep. And it says he took one of Adam's ribs and he closed up the place from which he had taken it. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to Adam. Now, visualize this. It's hilarious. Adam's asleep. And God takes his piece that he took from Adam's side and he fashions for him this beautiful, beautiful woman. Adam has gone through this whole process of trying to name the animals and looking for somebody like himself and he never found anybody. He is lonely. God brings her, stands her next to his gurney or his bed and Adam's waking up and he's, he's trying to get the sleep out of his eyes. You know, he's trying to get his faculties back and all of a sudden he sees her standing right there. Look at what he says in verse 23. At last, Adam exclaimed, She's part of my own flesh and bones and she will be called woman. Actually, he didn't name her. He just looked at her and went, whoa, man. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> Finally, he had what he needed. Now, it's amazing. Y'all liked that, didn't you? I believe it happened that way. Isn't it amazing that right behind this account, of how God made Adam a mate, he defines marriage and he sets in place his divine rule, his unchanging rule. You see, marriage is not man's idea. It's all about what God had planned. God planned marriage. He prepared marriage. He purposed marriage. He established its permanence right behind this God explains things. So look, look at Genesis 2.24. It says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. There is the leaving of the man from his family so he can get a job. If you've got daughters, you want your future son-in-law to have a job. Amen? Y'all, That's a good time for y'all to say amen. I mean, I, you know, you don't want them moving in with you. You want them to have a job. And, and, and once they get to where they can take care of a family, then there's to be joining. They, they get married. There's a process. There's an order here. They get married and then it says, and the two are united into one flesh. That's a one flesh union. That means they are now, because they're married, allowed to come together intimately. So there you have it, guys. The first, the first humans... The first couple, male and female, the first marriage and all in accordance with God's will. And, and it was very good and God was happy and they were happy. They were having a great time. But when you read on, when you jump from chapter two to chapter three, that which was very good all of a sudden becomes a big, big problem. You see, this marriage started out as a threesome, but it didn't stay that way. Now, don't get upset with me. And don't misunderstand me. I didn't say there was another man and I didn't say there was another woman. I said a threesome. And I am correct. There is another person involved in this marriage, but guess what? It's God. 
It's God. And things were very good for the three of them. They were all happy. They were all satisfied because they were rightly relating to each other. Everything was beautiful. But obviously, the three of them had a wonderful relationship, but then something like sin happened. Sin entered the picture. Now, again, try to visualize things. They, they were in a perfect environment. God would come and he would walk with them and, and talk with them, and they would have a good time. They enjoyed getting together. They enjoyed seeing each other. They were glad to see each other. If you look at Genesis 3.8, you, you get a clue to this. It said, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. What was God doing? Well, he was doing what he normally did. He did it all the time. He was coming to visit with them. He was coming to work on their relationship. He was investing in them. He was teaching them. He was loving them. And during that time, they had no problem obeying God. God blessed them and they were all satisfied and their needs were met. But then one day, Eve let temptation get the best of her. Friends, that was the day that Satan suggested that things could be better. You can have more. Life can be bigger. And so she entertained that thought and, and she did what God told her not to do. She chose to eat some of the forbidden fruit, which was in my mind an indication that she was no longer satisfied with what God was providing for her. And she gave some to Adam and he quickly followed her lead and he ate what he had specifically been told to leave alone. And he too, friends, was you know, showing that he was not satisfied with God's provision. If you look at Genesis 3, 6, it said the woman was convinced. Well, what in the world was she convinced of? She was convinced that Satan was smarter than God. That's right. Satan said, if you eat it, you're, you're going to be like God. You're going to be wise. And she figured out, you know, Satan's smarter than God. So it said the fruit looked so fresh and delicious and it would make her so wise so she ate some of the fruit and, and she gave some to her husband uh, who was with her and then he ate it too and well, they, they both disobeyed God. Now there's some typical consequences that come along when you sin against God and, and they're, they're very clear in here. Immediately the two of them tried to cover the shame and guilt of their sin. I, how many of you have ever picked figs? Do y'all remember the old rock wool insulation? This new stuff doesn't itch very bad, but that old stuff would just eat you up. Well, guys, after they sinned, they made clothing out of fig leaves. Now, when you pick a leaf off the tree, what does it do? It dries, doesn't it? And the drier it gets, the itchier it gets. Can you imagine making clothing out of rock wool insulation? That's about what they did. Sin leads to more stupidity. They tried to cover the sin on their soul, but they failed. They even tried to hide from God. How do you do that? They were afraid to meet up with God. Obviously, they knew things weren't right between them and God now. I mean, their, their wonderful relationship with God was destroyed and all of a sudden, their beautiful world was just turned upside down. Things weren't right. But God being the loving God that he is, and thank God he is a loving God. Thank God he, he takes the initiative. He took the initiative to confront them. Now, we wouldn't have done that. We would have just run. But God 
confronted them. He took that initiative. That's an act of love. He said to Adam, have you eaten the fruit I commanded you not to eat? Well, the obvious answer is, yes, sir, I did. But he goes, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. It was the woman. But he even takes it further than that. Not only did he blame her, but he said, it's the woman you gave me. So it's your fault. If you hadn't give her to me, I wouldn't be in this fix. I'd have never touched it. <laughs> God turns to her and looks at her and she said, it's the devil. He did it. It's not my fault. Neither of them were accepting responsibility for their sin. And guys, listen, from that point on, neither of them looked like God spiritually either. The, the image that God had created them in had been marred, had been distorted. It changed them from who they were. I, I read this quote from Dr. Lee last week about the image of God that he created us in. Dr. Lee said, we're like God in that he has given us both the need and the ability to rightly relate with him and our fellow man. However, sin has marred that image. The result is that we still have the need to, to rightly relate, but sin has marred that ability. Their relationship with God is now damaged. And they're not getting along with each other. They still have the need to be right with God and they need to be right with each other, but, but their ability has been greatly hindered by their selfish desires and their sinfulness. I, I think you're all adults here, most of us are, and I, I think you know that sin messes up things in the home. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy your church. That's why people often leave God behind is they're not satisfied. That's why people often cheat on their spouses because they're not satisfied. That's why our children sometimes run away from home. They're not satisfied. We're easily unsatisfied people. And yet Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for rightness, then God's going to bless you. If you hunger and you thirst, what does that look like? Well, David uh, shares very carefully with us what that means. Ronnie shared some of these verses earlier, Psalms 143.6. David wrote, I reach out for you. I can just see David reaching to the heavens for God. He said, I lift my hands to you in prayer. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for rain. Guys, how thirsty are you for God? I guarantee you, you've had a cup of coffee, a glass of juice, or a glass of water, or a glass of milk, or something this morning. But how many of you already have spent time with God today? Think about that. When was the last time we were thirsty for God? We know that when it rains in the desert, the, the, the rain quickly evaporates. Why? Because the ground is so dry and thirsty. It quickly disappears. David said, my soul thirsts after you, O God, just like a dry, thirsty land in Psalm 63. He says, O God, you are my God and I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. This was David's way of saying, God, I can't live my life without you. And we know that David sought after the Lord as if everything he did depended on that relationship. He earnestly pursued God with all of his being. In Psalms 145, he writes, 
for your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule, you rule generation after generation. The Lord is faithful in all he says. He is gracious in all that he does. The Lord helps the fallen and he lifts up those bent beneath their load. All eyes look to you for help. You give them their food as they need it. When you open your hand, you satisfy the hunger and thirst of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in everything that he does. In all honesty, you know, everywhere I look, and I have to confess that sometimes that's when I'm looking at the mirror, I find people who just aren't satisfied. We're not satisfied with the clothes we have or the shoes we wear. We're not satisfied with the type of cell phone we have. We've got to have the newest and best. Websites, Congress, presidents, policies, executive orders, laws. Sometimes we're not satisfied with our looks, our weight, our health, our hair color, or the fact that we have no hair. Sometimes we're not satisfied with jobs or, or our pay or retirement, our marriages, our parents, our children. Sometimes we're not satisfied with the doctor we have or the car we drive or the home we live in or the church we go to. Do you know what? The real problem is this. People just aren't satisfied with God. We're not even satisfied with the way that God has chosen to save us. And maybe that's because we just don't understand the salvation that he gives to us. When Paul wrote to the Roman Christians, he said, but now God has shown us a, a different way of being right in his sight. You used to think it was works, but I'm telling you it's by grace. He said, not by obeying the law, but by the way promised in the scriptures long ago. He said in verse 22, we are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And we all can be saved in the same way, no matter who we are or what we have done. I love that. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been with, no matter how bad your sin is, you can still be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. And we need to. Why? Because verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standards. The big question is this. What happens to you when you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? What happens when you do that? You see, we, we don't dig deep enough sometimes. I think we're just shallow because we, we think, well, it's done, and that's all I need. I just need to know it's done. Don't, don't give me the details. Well, friends, you need to know the details because when life gets tough, you need to be sure that you've been saved and your confidence needs to be in the Lord. What does God do for you when he saves you? Well, he washes away all the sin that you've accumulated on your lost soul. He washes all of that away. That sin-stained soul is now clean. It's been washed. Jesus accepted and he carried to the cross all the weight of your sin. He took the punishment that God had waiting for you. In doing so, he bought and paid for in full the right to be able to forgive you. And you know what? He removes all of our guilt. He makes us clean before God. I love Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. It's a verse that I wish you'd memorize, and, and, and it, it means a lot. The Lord says through Isaiah, come, let us talk about these things. We really need a conversation with God about what sin does to us. Look at what he says. Though your sins are like scarlet, that's a very deep, deep red. And, and, and red stains terribly. You can't wash it out. 
He said, though your sins are scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Though your sins are deep red, they can be as white as wool. He can wash you clean. A second thing that he does, not only does he remove that stain and that guilt from your soul, but he also gives you his righteousness. His righteousness. You see, your sin destroyed your rightness with God. It makes you unacceptable. It leaves you in a situation where you can't spend eternity with God. If you got sin on your soul, you can't be right with God. But Jesus can change that, praise the Lord. His death on the cross satisfied the wrath that God had for sinners. And you know, when you take Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he imparts to you his innocence. He makes you right with God. He restores the relationship that you and your sin destroyed. He covers you with his righteousness. I was thinking about that earlier today and you know just being covered in his righteousness that is so important Jesus and the father they have a perfect relationship they have always been right with each other there's never been anything between them Jesus was innocent pure holy right and when you accept him he gives you that rightness He covers you with his righteousness and and God becomes satisfied with you, not because of your good deeds, but because of the righteousness of his son and, and all because he was right. He never did anything wrong. Look at Romans chapter five, verse 17. It says, the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over us, but all who receive God's wonderful, gracious gift of righteousness will live and triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brought condemnation upon everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness makes all people, and I'll qualify that, all people who trust in him right in God's sight and gives them what? Life. But not just any kind of life. Not just physical life to be lived on earth, but eternal life with God that never, ever, ever ends. Not only does Jesus wash you of your sin and give you his righteousness, but he also seals your soul. Oh, we're getting deep now. Most people don't understand the sealing of God's righteousness on your soul. It's a Greek word that means to secure, preserve, to keep safe, to make permanent. It means fixed. It means certain. It's a mark of ownership. It is a deposit. It is a guarantee of what is to come. It is God's divine protection on your saved soul. Now, what what I learned this week, and and it's important when you think about it, God's seal rests on us and in us. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the very first thing he does is he cleans you up. He cleans you up and he makes you acceptable to God. You go from being a dirty, rotten sinner whose best deeds are nothing but filthy rags to being pure and innocent and clean again. He makes you innocent. He makes you acceptable to God. But there are two more amazing things that happen to you. After he cleans you up, he comes to dwell in you for all eternity. 
The Spirit of God moves in. He's got to get the sin out before he can move in. So guys, if there's sin on your soul, he's not coming in. He's got to clean you first. But then when he covers you with his righteousness, after he moves in, he covers you with that righteousness and he seals your soul as his prized possession forever. Once the Holy Spirit moves in, he then seals you with his righteousness. And according to the word of God and the act of God, you can never be lost again. Oh, we can sin again. We can sin again, but sin can't get back on the soul because we're protected by the righteousness of Christ. Look at these verses with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writes, now it is God who makes, us, makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. I was reading these verses this morning and it dawned on me. It says, the next three words say, he, he anointed us. He poured his righteousness on us. It's like you taking a candy, an apple with a stick and dipping it in caramel and it completely covers the apple. You understand that? Some of you are licking your lips right now. I know. Just like that caramel surrounds and seals that apple, you are sealed in the righteousness of Christ. Verse 22 says, he sets his seal of ownership on us. That's, that's the outside, but he puts his spirit in your hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Well, what are we hoping for? Heaven. Amen? He guarantees it when his spirit comes to dwell in you. Ephesians 4, 29 and 30 says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I like that. God protects us after he saves us. When you accept Christ, he washes you up. He covers you with his righteousness. He seals your soul eternally. He promises eternal life. And friends, that is life with God that never ends. Now, if that doesn't make you satisfied, I think we just need to go home. Amen? That, if that unsatisfies, I don't know what will. But here's the reality, guys. Whatever you focus on determines whether or not you're going to be satisfied. Wherever your focus is, what you're focused on will determine whether you're satisfied or not. If you're focused on the things of this world, they constantly change, do they not? You might buy something brand new, but in a few years, it's going to be wore out. And what once made you happy is not going to make you happy anymore. So you're not going to be satisfied with it. You're going to have, have something else. If you focus only on the things of this world, you're going to constantly be unhappy, dissatisfied. But if you'll focus on Christ, you'll never not be satisfied. If you focus on the wrong things, they're never going to satisfy you. Why? Because... Focusing on the wrong things just causes us to worry, and worry is not of God. It's, it's, it, it can destroy you if you're worried about things all the time. How many of you travel a lot? You, you, ever, you ever been able to drive straight through the fog? <laughs> fog messes things up, doesn't it? It can, it can lock up the highways, the airways, the freeways, you know, the runways, the shorelines. And what I didn't know this week until this week was it only takes a small glass of water to
to cover an entire acre with fog. Just a little glass of water will produce enough fog to cover an entire acre. I was reading something this week by Dr. Adam Dooley, and he said, think about this, a minimal amount of worry can wreak immense havoc in your lives. If a little bit of fog can shut down traffic, worry can easily paralyze you with the fear of what if. The fear of what if. What if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if my mate runs out on me? What if my daughter gets pregnant? What if? What if? What if? How many of us would it acknowledge and be honest in saying, I sometimes have a problem with worry? Some of you are lying because you ain't raising your hand. We all do. You woke up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and be consumed with something you can't get off your mind, right? And you can't go back to sleep. That's worry. And it'll get the best of you. And, 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 and I have that problem. Well, you know what? Jesus has an antidote for worry. You know what it is? Do you want to know what it is? If I give it to you, will you use it? Because medicine won't do you any good unless you take it. All right, I'm going to give you God's antidote for worry. Go ahead and pop it on the screen. Matthew 6, 33. Look what it says. Seek first, underline first. Seek first, what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things that you need are going to be added to you. But if you, you got to seek his kingdom first. Be kingdom minded. Have his agenda. Folks, it's all about trusting God enough to seek his kingdom in every area of your life, knowing that God's going to provide whatever you need. But it's trusting him enough to seek him first and knowing he'll provide. But it's also about being satisfied with what God gives you. You see, that, that's where we have a lot of problems. Now, I, uh, I search for an illustration. And you know what? God's really good about giving you what you need when you need it. What does being satisfied with God look like? Do you mind if I read this to you? It's from Gene Foster. Update on Tom. Well, finally, we have the full picture. The result of the liver biopsy showed that Tom has stage four small cell lung cancer that has uh, metastasized in the lymph nodes around the lung and the liver. This is an aggressive cancer and the chemo treatment will only prolong his life three to 12 months. 
She says, that's sad news. But we are trusting God for his plan for us, knowing that it's good. What does Romans 8.28 say? All things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. He didn't say everything's going to be good. Guys, you're living in a fallen world. We have an enemy that's out there trying to trip us up every time he gets an opportunity. It's not going to be good. And on top of that, there's a certain amount of things that God allows in our life to shape us into the image of his son. Do you think the cross was a good experience for Jesus? Uh Uh-uh. He took your hell on the cross so that you could be forgiven. I love this because she goes on to say, your prayers are not in vain. We have been encouraged and sustained by them. That's a mature believer. That that is the testimony of two people who are trusting God for everything they need. That's the kind of people we need to be. I told Sharon this morning, they're not making too many Toms and Jeans anymore. Tom and Jean have faithfully served in our preschool back there until Tom got to where he could not get down on the floor with the kids. It wasn't that he didn't want to. It's that there was so much fluid building up inside him from the cancer, not knowing he even had cancer, but there was so much fluid that he couldn't get down and get up. Guys, Wednesday they took two and a half liters of fluid off him and didn't get it off. But Tom's still smiling. And so is Gene. Why? Because they're the kind of people that are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And they have been satisfied. And will continue to be. That's who we need to be. God desires for us to be right with him. He desires for us to be right with those around us. And friends, that that is a righteousness that leads to satisfaction. The success in that endeavor has everything to do with you coming under his lordship and nothing to do with us counting the things we have in our hands. Coming under his lordship. I've told several people this week that drawing close to the Lord and becoming uh, a a true follower of Christ and and resting under his headship and his lordship is like like him toting the umbrella and you standing under it with him. When, when 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 you make him lord of your life, you get as close to God as you possibly can get and that's your aim. You're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. When you do and you're under that umbrella 
the, the, the one that is God's. You are protected. You are blessed. It, it doesn't get any better than that. But he has to be the Lord of your life for you to be under the umbrella with him. Most of us like to get out from under the umbrella and live in the world. And when we do, we're exposed to the elements and all the things that the enemy is trying to throw our way. But under that umbrella, resting in his lordship, that is as good as it gets. It doesn't get any better. My question to you this morning is, you know, and, and, and you can say this is just a matter of schematics. But, but is he just Lord of your life? I mean, be honest. There's not a person in this room that wants to go to hell. So we're going to let him be our Savior. Amen? Who wouldn't? But he wants to be Lord. Just letting him be Savior and not being Lord is kind of like getting married. Visualize this. A man and a woman come forward. The pastor is standing at the front. They exchange vows. They change rings. It's beautiful. The music's beautiful. The candles are beautiful. Everything's wonderful. But then he says to her, hey, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this. I've had the time of my life today. I am never going to forget this ever in my life. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever experienced. But, but you know, there's some things I need to do. I, I, I'm going to need to leave. I'm going to need to be away for a while. I don't know whether I'm going to be gone a week or maybe even you know a year, maybe five years or ten years. I don't know. But, you know, honey, I love you. I really love you, and I'm glad we did this today. But i got to go. What in the world was she to think? And what is God to think when we walk the aisle, pray a prayer, we, we let the preacher dunk us underwater, and then that's it? Well, guys, that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. He wants to not only save our soul, but he wants to be the Lord of our life. And he wants that relationship to be beautiful between you and him so that it can be beautiful between you and everybody else. Because look, when, when your relationship with God's not right, you know what it tells me? You're having problems with people around you. And I'm not God, but when I see you having trouble with people around you, it tells me there's something not right here. Read the Ten Commandments. The first four deals with your vertical relationship with God. The next six talks about your horizontal relationship with the people around you. What does that make? A cross. For you to be right with God, for you to be right with your fellow man, it takes what Jesus did on the cross. There's no other way. It's all about his lordship in your life. Let's bow our heads. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. I'd love for you just to be quiet and still. What I'm going to ask you to do this morning has absolutely nothing uh, to do for me, but it has everything to do for you and your relationship with God, but also the relationship that you may be struggling with with people. 
I'm asking you to evaluate what you call as a relationship with God. Is it real? Is it in name only? Are you hungry and thirsty for God? Can you live your life without God? Have you been living your life without God? Is he Lord of your life? I can tell you this, that he might not be. But I can tell you this, he wants to be. And I'm going to invite you this morning, not necessarily to come speak to me, but if you need to be saved, you come here. I'll help you do that. But if you're a Christian that's been struggling with the Lordship of Christ and you need to, to make that kind of commitment to the Lord, this altar is here. And you can come and just you and God get things straightened out there. Make a commitment, but then live that commitment. God's interested in you. He's taken the initiative today to speak to your heart right where you're at. And if you've heard him, you need to respond. Because that is an act of obedience. Anything less is disobedience. We know what happens when we disobey God. I want you to be blessed. I want you to reap all the blessings that God has in store for you. But to do that, you've got to be under that umbrella. You've got to be close to God. Father, we are humans and, Lord, we are still learning about you. As, as Adam was learning about you, we're learning about you. God, maybe you've said some things today to us that we've not heard before. And, and Lord, I, I, I pray for all of us if we've heard you. That God, whatever you've encouraged our hearts to do, that, Lord, we'll be obedient. Because at the end of the day, Lord, it's about you. It's about being who you want us to be. And that's your children. You want us to have that love relationship. Because everything, everything comes out of that intimacy that you call us into. Lord, bind the enemy. He's been here already today and he's tried to distract us. I pray, God, that you would set us free as we react or act in obedience to your, your spirit today. Lord, thank you for your love and your grace and mercy. And thank you no matter where we've been, what we've done, what we haven't done. Lord, you're calling us to you today. Help us to hear help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand? Will you stand and respond to God? If God has spoken to your heart, and I pray that he has, what does God want you to do with your life? What does he want you to do? You come as God leads.